The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening, everybody. Nice to be here. Nice to see you all. So, um, yes, yeah, so in terms of if I want to update my bio, <laughs> that was from 2004. And now we're in 2016, and I do have, <laughs> and actually that was 2000, I can't remember, it was early, later than that. Anyhow, it's a while ago. Um, I do have a new book called Make Peace With Your Mind, How Mindfulness and Compassion Can Help Free You From the Inner Critic. Uh, and Gil invited me down here to speak uh, and to share some of my reflections on that theme. So I will do my best uh, to summarize some of my uh, reflections in the next 45 minutes. So um, the Buddha talked about cultivating a boundless heart towards all life, all beings, including ourselves, perhaps the hardest place for us to be kind and tender and forgiving towards. And um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, when he came to the West, uh, one of the first meetings uh, with, I think it was uh, a combination of scientists and teachers, and um, a teacher was trying to explain to him this thing called self-hatred. And he kept turning to his translator going, what are they talking about? What are they talking about? And then he said, mm, this is wrong view. <laughs> to not like oneself, wrong view. <laughs> if, you know, coming from his culture, the, this idea of not liking oneself and being hard on oneself and, and self-critical in the ways that we are, was he, he couldn't get his head around it. Growing up with a culture that believes in Buddha nature at birth, as opposed to perhaps original sin or something similar. Um, so, so we want to ask what gets in the way of uh, our love, particularly our love for ourselves. Since the, the wellspring of love for others in the world comes from how we regard ourselves, if we can't be kind to ourselves, then we want to take a look at where the heart is restricted and where the mind is misguided in misperceiving ourselves and only seeing our faults and not our strengths. So I came to Dharma practice young. I was 19 um, and uh, I was a very tortured young man as often young people can be because it doesn't change necessarily that much as we get older but um, <laughs> that's another story. And I wanted to share a little about this journey because it really was very related to my work on my own critic. In my late teens, I was a young man with a lot of rage. I was a punk rocker, an anarchist, and in constant search of a target for my anger. The punk rock and anti-establishment movements in the political underground in London were perfect um, outlets for my, for my fury. Mostly, it was directed towards the government, corporations, and injustice, you could say they were easy targets. What I didn't understand was that I'd un unconsciously become the target of much of my own hatred. My mind was filled with self-flagellation 
and through that murky lens, I was never good enough or smart enough. Sound familiar? That deficiency tune was a mantra that played over and over in my head. Every decision, every move was wrong, stupid, or hopeless from my inner critic's point of view. Could I get a little more light? I can barely see, even with my glasses. Thank you. I'd rejected much of what I was told I should seek or want. The inner journey began when I stumbled into what was then, in 1984, a pretty rare thing, a meditation center in the heart of London, a run-down East End. The moment I walked into the center, I realized that people there were somewhat different. There was a clarity, serenity, and purpose in their eyes and in the way they moved and talked. There was a quality that most people I was surrounded by lacked in spades. I didn't quite know what it was, but I wanted and needed it badly. And it was there I was exposed to my first toolkit. However, this was no ordinary toolkit. It was a set of skills unlike I'd ever been exposed to. It was a toolkit for the mind. Up to that moment, I'd never really thought of turning my attention inward, and I'd never thought of looking at myself to see why I was so unhappy, why I had so much mental anguish, why I was so busy looking outward for someone else to blame. But that turn inward was the intention was the orientation I was invited to cultivate. And so, as we turn our minds inwards to look at why we perhaps we're not unbrokenly happy, undividedly peaceful. Anybody undividedly peaceful? Just radiating well-being and happiness. Here we are in this you know, very you know, beautiful part of the world and some would say somewhat affluent and privileged and yet we are troubled with a lot of anguish and doubts and uncertainty and uh, confusion. And so our practice is to reveal, you know, what is it that it's hard just to be with myself, hard to sit with myself in a room quietly without some device to distract myself. Researchers when they tried doing that with people, for 10 minutes people would sit in a room, they were asked to sit by themselves doing nothing, or they could administer themselves electric shocks. <laughs> and I think it was like 60, 70% of people would rather have an electric shock than actually sit by themselves quietly in a room. So you folks would probably do great with sitting quietly in a room for a while. <laughs> So this is from Dwight Moody who says, I've had more trouble living with myself more than any other person I've ever known. <laughs> right? We give ourselves we're a hard time, you know. So, so I, the reason I wrote this book on the critic is because I've worked with students and clients for over 20 years now, and I, I would say the number one source of our own Self-created anguish is generated by our self-judgments and our, and our lack of kindness and our high standards and our perfectionistic ideals which we berate ourselves with uh, to the point of uh, mental anguish and who knows what else worse. So there are many names for the critic, the judge, the taskmaster, uh, the bully, um, as one student said, the itsy-bitsy shitty committee. 
Uh, what are some of your names for what you, what this part of your mind that's always on your case? Anybody got a name for this, this inner voice? The tyrant, yes. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, I would say it's more of an outer critic, but that could be personified. Any other voice, any other names? Usually someone shouts out, Mom, <laughs> or Dad, <laughs> or the local priest, or somebody. Right? It's the killjoy, the inner destroyer. You've got a very high-tech lamp here. Thank you. That's kind. All right. So does anybody escape this voice? Is anybody? I do occasionally meet people who move through this life unscathed with, uh, from self-persecution. Um, and, uh, and I'll talk about this at the end of the talk if I have time. They're remarkably light. They're remarkably spacious. They have a certain sense of ease and uh, ability to laugh at themselves without, uh, and, and have faults without uh, feeling burdened by them. Maybe you know people like that who, who have a lighter sense of themselves and there's a certain kind of spaciousness that they have. So, and of course, there are certain places where our critic shows up more than others. Do you have any parents in the room? <laughs> Anybody got parenting down? <laughs> Is there a perfect parent out there, perfect way to parent out there? No, it's one of the hardest things to do in life. There's a line from Annie Lamott, who is a wonderful writer and... Um, very uh, funny um, author. She says, I'm probably just as good a mother as the next repressed, obsessive, compulsive paranoiac. (laughs) So, and even the Buddha, um, as awake and as free as he was, was not free from what I would say is the voice of the critic, which back then... Um, was personified and mythologized as Mara. Mara being the, the epitome of unconsciousness, of the egoic forces that bind us. And as you, I'm sure, all know, the famous story when the Buddha's taking his seat uh, and vows never to rise from the seat until he's attained full uh, omniscience, full clarity, full awakening into the cause of suffering and the freedom from suffering. And as he's working with the the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, and working with uh, all kinds of difficult uh, uh, demons that we work with, the the voice of Mara came um, and said to him in a voice that may resonate with how we might talk to ourselves, and he said, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to sit on this lotus throne of enlightenment where all the great Buddhas of the past have sat? Who do you think you are to take this seat? Who Are you worthy to take this seat? Maybe we've had that own voice to ourselves. Am I worthy to sit on this cushion here with all this suffering in the world? Or whatever the story is for why you're not worthy to take this seat. And the Buddha famously in this Bhumas Pasham Mudra uh, touches his hand to the earth and, and says, the earth is my witness. 
The earth is my witness. By the very fact that I'm living on this earth as a human sentient being, I am worthy to take this seat. We are worthy to be here. We are worthy to take our seats here. And it's very important for us to find that voice, to find that knowing, to find that understanding that we are worthy to claim our, our place in our body, in this life, in our practice, in the world. Another way, and, 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 and so the Buddha was able to, um, as the story goes, whenever, he was, whenever this voice, this personification would arise, he would get into dialogue, and then eventually he would, the Buddha would say, I see you, Mara. I see this voice of doubt, of self-doubt, this delusion. And then Mara would sort of be disappointed and disgruntled and have a sour face and walk away. Um, that's how the story goes. And even after the Buddha's awakening, the, the Mara came to him many times. I forget how many. Someone counted them, 37 times or something throughout his life, which meant that he wasn't free from this particular um, uh, tendency. And another way of framing the critic in a Buddhist context is it's very akin to the second arrow, the second dart. The Buddha talked about we have many uh, ways that we experience the first dart, the first arrow. We might be experiencing physical pain. We might be feeling heartbreak over the election or loss of a loved one or a difficult relationship you're in. That's the first arrow, just life and its general pain. And then the second arrow is our layers of judgment, of uh, shoulds, of I should be over this, I shouldn't be feeling grief that that person died so many years ago. Why am I still caught up in longing? And right, These are the added layers that we, we put on our experience that just, just amplify our pain. And the critic is really a great example of the second dart. Right? You might be sitting in meditation like you may have been sitting here tonight going, wow, this is a long meditation. When is he going to ring the bell, for God's sake? And then the critic comes up and goes, well, that's not very mindful. <laughs> that's not very spiritual. You've been meditating for 17 years and you can't sit for very long anymore. What's up with you? You're a little pathetic. Everybody else seems very Buddha-like except you, you miserable wretch. <laughs> that's the second arrow, right? So I'm glad you're laughing because it's good to laugh because if it's, as Wavy Gravy says, if you don't have a sense of humor, it just ain't funny, right? <laughs> so we need to be able to laugh at ourselves because we're a little wacky. I mean, we have these thoughts that we believe and they go on and on and we say the same thing every day. It's like watching a bad series on TV over and over and we just merrily turn on the TV, and there it is. Oh, I'm a, still a bad person as I was yesterday. Great. Let me see how bad I am. Right? We sign up for, for suffering quite readily. It's amazing. So, so mindfulness, the function of mindfulness is to reveal, is to clarify, is to, is to illuminate. And, what, and so with our practice of awareness, we can illuminate the critic and its manifestations and its impact and how to, how to work with it. So how does the critic manifest? How do you experience? How does it operate? Right? So it's the voice in our head that's telling us 
we're not perfect. We're not doing it right. We're not enough. Right? The not enough mantra. Right? Think of all the ways you're not enough. Maybe not smart enough. You're not Buddhist enough. Not compassionate enough. So what happens is the critic follows us around. Maybe um, you know, a critic developed in early childhood as a way to protect us to fit in with our family of origin, to somewhat quell our wild impulses that we have as children, and it had a a function to help us navigate the terrain of the intensity of our inner experience so we would maximize the stream of love and affection, what what Freud would call the superego, managing these impulses. And then it sort of took a life of its own, and it's still doing that 35 years after you've left home. Telling us to be a good boy and girl and don't speak up and be seen and not heard or whatever the voices and messages that you were told, we've internalized them. And so one of the ways that we've internalized that voice is we look around and we believe that we're not enough. Not smart enough, not wealthy enough, not... And so with the reason, what I was going to say was that the, the critic follows us around. So at college, we're not intellectual enough. You know, when we, become, we go into the healthcare field, we're not kind enough. When we walk into a Buddhist center, we're not mindful enough. We're not compassionate enough. When we go home to our families, we're not caring enough with our kids. Or we don't listen enough as a, as a spouse. Right? So we... Uh, we, we're hounded by this voice, this, this, this mantra, this insufficiency mantra, which then fuels all kinds of longings and uh, acting out and compensations and, and whatnot. So the critic has this idealized standard of, of how we should be, how we should think, how we should live, how we should talk, and nobody's perfect. Right? We're all wonderfully imperfect. I spend a lot of t- my time in nature. My nature is my, my temple and my teacher. And um, nothing's perfect in nature. You know, the trees are gnarly and crooked and half falling over and full of moss and decay and rot and moss and all kinds of things. And we think, wow, what a beautiful tree. We don't go, well, if it just tilted up a little bit, and just shed some of that, you know, rather wide girth and, you know, did a little, you know, pruning of the canopy, then it would be just perfect. No, it's just a tree, right? How about if we looked at ourselves with our aging wrinkles and our graying hair and, you know, slightly saggy skin, whatever it is that we have, and go, that's how it is in this life, in this body at this time. And it's fine just as it is. It's good enough just as it is. I try and replace the, the perfection mantra and the not enough mantra with good enough mantra. It's just good enough. That meditation was good enough. I got myself on the cushion. I sat here for 45 minutes. That's good enough. And if I paid attention a little bit, great. <laughs> I didn't fall asleep. Fantastic. <laughs> so this sort of seems the underlying, one of the underlying premises of the critic is it's not okay to be ourselves. It's not okay to be human. It's not okay to have foibles. We're all wacky, we're all eccentric, we're all quirky and idiosyncratic, and that makes us interesting, right? diverse and complex and rich. And so we have to honor that 
diversity and complexity and, and, and quirkiness. You know, from England, we have to. It's part of being English. It's, it's full of quirky people. But they're everywhere, apparently. <clears throat> Another way it manifests is imposter syndrome. We feel like we're, we're a fraud. Maybe you, you're sitting in here and you think, if they only knew <laughs> what I was really doing in meditation, they would kick me out. <laughs> Or if they, uh, if they heard me shouting at the dog when I get home from a bad day at work, they would just, you know, cut my membership here or, you know, or, you know all the ways that we're humbled by, by our, our wackiness. Yeah? So I once was working, I was doing some consulting in a hedge fund, and, and actually back to the not enough uh, story, um, and this guy had made some series of trades. He'd made the company $50 million. And this was in the heyday pre-crash. Um, and um, I went to see him that later that day. And he was very kind of distressed looking. I thought, my God, this, this man has made more money than, than a whole city might make in a year. And, um, and he said, you know, I should have bought earlier and sold later. I could have made a few more million. His critic did not let up, right? It's never enough. It's never enough. So we need to make, and we need to be clear about the difference between this judging mind, so that the nature of the critic is when it judges us, it's basically an attack on our self-worth. It's not just an idle comment of, oh, that meditation was a little distracted, or there was a lot of sleepiness, which is a discernment or an evaluation. A judgment is, implies something about our value, Oh, you were distracted, and it's a little pathetic, and you're a waste of time and a loser. Right? That's sort of the, the implication, subtle or gross. Usually it's subtle, but sometimes it's gross. So we want to be clear when the mind is judging, when it's discriminating. We, we need discrimination and, and our crit critical faculty for our work and you know, reasoning and decision-making. But this quality of judging that has a tone of negativity and an implicit attack on our value, that's what we need to be aware of and we need to catch. We need to see it with mindfulness. We need to label it. We need to name it. We need to use the power of mindfulness that allows us to see something and create space and disidentify from it. Right? It's the amazing power of mindfulness. When we're caught in self-flagellation and beating ourselves up for what we said to our kids or somebody's birthday that we forgot or the way that we cut someone off in traffic and didn't care. We need to see the way that we judge ourselves and see the meanness and how it's really actually impacting our sense of worth. Because we, we need to cherish ourselves. Of course we make mistakes. Of course we say things that we regret. That's part of being human. But we don't need to you know, chastise ourselves for being a bad person. We can look, we can listen, we can learn, we can make intention, we can be remorseful, but we don't need to, to lash out at ourselves in that way. Uh, I was going to call this book, Make Peace With Your Mind, You Are Not Your Fault, which is a line from Wes Niska. Uh, I thought it was a perfect uh, line for the critic and, until Wes told me that his, he was writing a book about the same name, so I had to let that go. But what, what I liked about that title, You Are Not Your Fault, um, implies th just that, that who we are, how we are, we didn't 
sign up a catalog saying, yeah, I'll have a, this body and this wacky mind and this, you know, self-hatred. And No, we just got it through our conditioning and our family and our culture and whatever influences have come to us. And so, um, you know, the reason I, I framed the subtitle, um, which is how mindfulness and compassion can, I've forgotten it already, can free you from the inner critic we need both of those qualities. We need the clarity of mindfulness to see, right? To be aware, to understand, to know what's happening in our mind, to notice the negative impacts and the consequences. But we need the heart to hold that pain, right? So one of the significant things that happened for me early in my practice, I was living in this, in this sort of monastery in the country in England, and my critic was very vicious, very vocal, and loud, and I was tirading myself about something. And uh, all of a sudden, instead of just being very allied with my critic, which we normally do, and yes, I'm a bad person, yes, and that was terrible, and this is all the reasons why I'm a loser, I actually shifted from being the critic to being the one being judged, and feeling what it's like to be on the receiving end of that assault, right? If we let someone else talk to us like a critic talks to us, we would feel very uh, flanned, you know. It would be very painful if one of our friends started lashing out in the way that we talk to ourselves at times. So, but when we can actually shift allegiance from the critical thoughts to actually how it lands, we, it's a way of cutting that allegiance. Right? So when I started to feel how it was to f hear all these ways that I wasn't good enough, that I was a bad person, that I was, uh, you know, pathetic. and Something shifted where it's like, I, c I don't want to be doing this to myself. I don't want to be receiving this. This is really cruel. I would never talk to even an enemy like this, but yet I can talk to myself. And, you know, it's in a similar way that we might lash out at our spouse that we would never do in public or to a friend. And there's something in that close proximity that allows sometimes really a lot of vehemence. And so out of self-compassion, we want to find ways to be kinder, right? to, to see ourselves honestly and clearly, and to seize the ways that we need to grow and learn and, and develop and cultivate, but to not use that to punish ourselves. <clears throat> we are not our faults. So how to work with, with these voices. If, am I, am I, are you following me? This is, this is familiar territory. This is the voice, the, the harshness, right? I, I, as I say, rarely meet, rarely meet a person that doesn't have some flavor. Hopefully, as we get older and as we mature in our practice, it weakens and it wanes, but not always. Um, so, some ways to work with, with it. And, and of course, mindfulness is the foundation, right? Without awareness, nothing is possible. With awareness, we begin to see, we begin to pay attention. I, as you're sitting, does the critic operate when you're sitting? Judging your concentration, judging your attention, judging your lack of metta, judging your posture. Or does it spend, you spend a lot of time ruminating over the day and, and picking out all the ways that you weren't kind or nice or smart or whatever. And so there's a kind of a, it's like a, you know, you're, you're be, being hung by the jury of your day's performance. Right? So we need to see that clearly. Oh, there's the critic. There's the judging mind. Oh, judging. 
Oh, judging. Oh, now I'm judging myself for judging. Now I'm judging myself for having so many judgments. Well, there's a lot of judging going on. Judging, 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 judging. So we recognize, we label, we name. Joseph Goldstein used to have me count my judgments on on the three-month retreat some years ago. And he would say, just try counting them. 223, 495, 681. So, you know, at a certain point, it just gets silly. And you think, wow, this is a lot of judgments. And this is really just a lot of words. Blah, 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 blah. So, and because they're words, there are certain practices that are really helpful in counteracting them. One is naming them. Oh, judging, judging. One is uh, replacing... uh, uh, saying a neutral statement like, oh, your meditation's so pathetic and the sky is blue today. But look at your posture, you're such a slob and grass is green. So you're just seeing, oh, it's just words. I was working with a student at Spirit Rock who's a theater, theater uh, director. You know, some professions, some of you may be in these professions that are more prone to external critics, artists, musicians, etc., uh, lecturers, Dharma teachers, um, <laughs> and you know, praise and blame, it comes both ways, right? And uh, there's a phrase, who is this? I think it was Dustin Hoffman said, caught neither the critic's smile nor dread his frown, which means, uh, another st- I don't want to go, go down there, let's just take that as that for now. Um, so I'm realizing I'm sort of talking a mile a minute because I've got so, much, so many things to say. Um, so I was talking about uh, how the, the critic comes in words and there are replacing practices. So the, the most profound practice, I think, for counteracting the critic is, is what the Buddha called the replacing practice of metta, where you're replacing a negative mind state with a wholesome mind state. Two mind states can't exist at the same time in the mind, only one at a time. So if you're berating yourself, you know, oh, I'm such a terrible parent and may I be happy. Yeah, but my life's complete mess and may I be peaceful. Yeah, you're never going to find love. Who's going to love you? And may I be well. May I love myself conditionally. So each time you hear yourself judging yourself, you just say a metaphrase. May I be happy. No matter what the critic's saying, may I be peaceful. May I love myself just as I am. Maybe say it a few times. Right? I found, so there's a few practices I give to people on retreats and elsewhere uh, to counteract the critic. One, of course, is mindfulness, but, but, but most importantly, the meta practice as a way to um, create n- new neural pathways to shore up that sense of self-worth and love and kindness. And it takes time. You know, I started doing the meta practice 30 years ago, and it took many years to melt what, I, what was an iceberg of the heart. It was cold, hard, cut off to myself. I was so aligned with my critic that it was very hard for any kindness to penetrate. But over the years, it did start to melt. It did start to break up. I did, was able to see myself a little more clearly, both my strengths and my challenges. Um, so, and similarly, with the heart practices, um, as I was talking about, feeling the pain of feeling the, the, the wounding that comes from how we treat ourselves with cruelty, the, the antidote to cruelty is compassion. Right? So feeling the pain of that, acknowledging the painfulness of the critic. Oh, this is suffering. This is the first noble truth. This is dukkha. Right? To really understand and feel it's really hard. It's really hard to be present to the 
to the way I talk to myself. And, that, and acknowledging the painfulness of it allows the heart to engage with compassion, with self-care. And we're much less likely to, to what I call the swing door of the critic. What goes in goes out. What goes out goes in. If we're very judgmental with ourselves, guess what we do with everybody else? Right? If we're very judgmental with people out there or during the election judging those others, how could they vote for so-and-so? Right? It comes back to us. We judge in here. Right? Be watchful of that. We get great pleasure from judging others. We'll sit in a cafe and people walk by and we'll you know, comment on their clothes and their hair and the way they walk and all kinds of things. You know, As the Buddha said, whatever the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. If the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon judging ourselves, criticizing others, looking at others' faults, guess what we become? We become a judgmental, critical person. Is that what we want to be? Or do we want to be a kind person? Do we want to be a person who sees the goodness, to see to sees the possibility in others? If we do want to be that person, and, we, and you may know people like that, and it's very heartwarming to be around that quality of goodness, then we need to practice it right now, seeing the goodness in ourselves. The fact that you're here it was a reflection of your goodness. The fact that you meditate is a reflection of your goodness. The fact that you come and support the center is a reflection of your goodness. Of your intention to wake up, to be present, to be kind. Right? So you want to keep seeing your goodness. You want to feel that. Right? That is much stronger than any foible or, or, or issue that you have. Right? We're all neurotic. Let's just face it. Right? But we have underneath that fundamental goodness. So we can use inquiry as out of the cloud of mindfulness. We can inquire, is this judgment true? Is it really true that I'm worthless? Is it really true my life's a mess? Is it really true that I'm, I'm mean? At times we may be those things. You know, but it's, it's, just, it's separating the process from the person from the action from the person. Johnny's not a bad boy for throwing his toast on the floor, but those actions of throwing his food on the floor aren't so great. But he's still essentially a good you know, being. Right? So we do that with ourselves. We, we judge ourselves for being bad when really it's just certain actions and things and behaviors that may need a little attention, you know, a little work. We want to understand the voice. Whose voice is the voice in your head? And often it's very obviously apparent. Not always. But often, oh, that's my dad berating me. Or my mother, you know, needling me for something. Or it's the way that they talk to themselves and I just picked it up. You know, my parents weren't very critical to me. But my father was very critical to himself. And I just completely absorbed that like a sponge. That was the way you are. You're harsh and critical and unforgiving. So we can inquire, is this true? What, what's the payoff for, these, for believing these thoughts? Oh, I feel small. I feel diminished. I feel deficient. Is that something I want to support? Perhaps not. Sometimes we need the, 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 the sword... Um, 
Manjushri's sword, the, the sword of compassion. Sometimes we need a fierceness, just as sometimes a mother or a parent needs to be fiercely protective of someone harming their child. Maybe we need to be protective of our spouses or ourselves at times. The same with our critic. There's a place, sometimes there's an association that we think compassion means meekness. Compassion is compassion. Compassion sometimes is fierce. It's strong. It's powerful. It says no to injustice. It says no to racism. It says no to oppression. It says no to self-oppression. And sometimes we need that, that no to say to the critic, stop, enough. Not true, not helpful, not kind, not interested. Have a nice day. So there's different ways to work with the critic. That's one way. It's a fierce, it's a stopping no. We can do that at times. No strategy will work all the time. Other times we're like a Tai Chi master and we'll say, thank you for your opinion. And we just let it go by. Or we might say, yep, you're right. Thank you. You're right. I'm disorganized. I didn't know that. Thank you for reminding me. And you just let it go. It just blows right through. Rather than normally what we do is we engage with the critic. No, 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 I really am quite organized. I mean, I did tidy my sock drawer yesterday and I, I was able to find my keys two days ago. And, and, and as soon as we get into debating with our critic, we've lost because we've given the critic authority. And the, the, the thing we most want to do is maintain our own authority and not give it away to this old critical pattern. So ultimately, we want to find a way to be disinterested. This, just like thoughts and meditation are not going to stop. The critic is unlikely to just go on holiday to Hawaii and never come back. It's likely to stick around, because you've seen it stick around for quite a while, some of you. <laughs> so, but we want to learn how to have a skillful relationship. You know, as, as the Buddha and as teachers in this tradition we point to so often, it's not what's happening, it's the relationship to it. So how do we relate to this voice? I would suggest with disinterest, with kindness, with awareness, with clarity, sometimes with fierceness. But ultimately, it will be like a little yapping dog that follows us around and we don't really listen to it. You know, sometimes I'll just say, thank you for your opinion. Or, wow, I didn't know that. You know, I think ultimately humor is one of the best strategies. If we can laugh at ourselves, you know, so often I'm driving to Spirit Rock where I mostly teach. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to go. It's a little tight on time. I see there's traffic on the freeway. I can't find my keys. And guess who's going to tell me what's going on and how I'm performing is my critic. Oh, you can't find your keys? Mr. Mindfulness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And my retort to that is, yes, Mr. Mindfulness wins the day again. <laughs> He's lost his keys, or he can't find his wallet, or who knows what. He's late for teaching at Spirit Rock, and he's a little stressed. You know, if we can find humor in it, right, th- it takes the sting out. Right? So we want to find some strategy that allows us to, um, to just to pop the balloon I used to put a wig on my critic when I was on these long retreats, bad meditator, bad meditation, bad concentration, to make a joke of it. Or I'd say, yes, I'm the worst meditator in the world. What else do you have to say? Oh, I'm also the worst parent, thank you. And I'm the worst, okay, what else? Oh, yes, I'm the worst cook, okay, thank you. To make light of it, make space. 
So different ways, different ways. And then to cultivate the, the, its opposite, to cultivate the good, to cultivate gratitude. Right? It's so oriented to deficiency. Can we cultivate gratitude for what we do have? Can we, can we orient towards the good in others? Can we start seeing the goodness in the world even post-election when some of us are depressed and demoralized? Can we see the goodness? Can we see the commonality? Can we see our humanity? So I will close with some <clears throat> words. I'm looking for my glasses. <laughs> Which for those listening on wherever you listen to these talks, I'm wearing my glasses. <laughs> You've got to laugh, don't you? It's just, it's just funny. Right? And if you don't laugh, then you know it's, it's not funny. <laughs> So this is uh, from the last chapter called Inner Peace. And um, this is a quote from Henry Miller, the writer, author, and, and later artist. He said, whatever I do is done out of sheer joy. I drop my fruits like a ripe tree. What's, what the general reader or the critic makes of them is not my concern. What I do is done out of sheer joy. What the general reader or the critic makes of them is not my concern. I had a quote from a student the other day who, who says, um, other people's opinion of me is not my business. Other people's opinion of me is not my business. And people have lots of opinions about us because there are lots of judges out there, have you noticed? <laughs> not my business. You're completely entitled to whatever you think of me. Just not my business. What would life be like if you were no longer persecuted by critical voices in your head and lived your life as Henry Miller describes, doing things out of sheer joy, unconcerned about the critic. Imagine you had been walking around with a 60-pound backpack, and suddenly you put that weight down. How would that feel? Like an incredible relief, a great lightening of the load. This is how it can feel to live free from the critic. The title of Milan Kundera's novel, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, has always struck me as a great expression for what happens when the burden of self-judgment is lifted. Life without the critic does have a lightness to it, a sense of ease and playfulness and inner peace. When I encounter people who are freed from the millstone of the critic, it is as if they've got out of a, it is as if they have a get out of jail free card in the Monopoly game. They get to play an easier hand in life than others. They are not caught up in self-recrimination, second-guessing, and fixating on their problems or faults. They view mistakes as learning opportunities, can laugh at their foibles, and smile when they can't find their keys. They seem to be optimists, viewing others with appreciative eyes. They recover from setbacks easily. They look at the world with the attitude that the glass is half full. The glass half empty is simply not an option. So we all have... Um, uh, this possibility through our practice, through awareness, through compassion, through discernment, through inquiry, through humor, through self-love, we can look at this very tenacious, very um, insidious form of suffering and turn our lens of mindfulness towards it and actually 
find quite radical shifts in our sense of well-being when we really give it full attention. So um, I hope these words uh, are useful and serve you in your own exploration to see how you can make peace with your own mind. So thank you for your attention. Really delightful being here. I'll happily stay behind if you have questions. Thank you for your practice.